Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them as food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and then let's get into God's Word. Very simply, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, we, we can't see truth on our own, and so we ask for the Spirit's assistance to open our eyes. And Lord, we pray that you would warm our hearts, so we, we want to understand things, but we want our affections to be touched. And so we ask that you would do that. And finally, we pray that you would not leave us unchanged. Lord, your word always wants to get something done in us. So would you not only open our eyes, warm our hearts, but would you mold our wills? Would you mold us and make us to be the people that you have called us to be for our good and the glory of our Savior? In his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get going. Um, Remember, we're at the, Matt just read the scripture, we're at the end of day six. Remember I told you last week that day six, we got a slow motion, right? We slow down because we're at the apex of God's creative activity. In day six, God creates humanity. He creates male and female. He creates men and women. And so the title of last week's sermon was Five Highlights About Humanity, as God created us. And last week we hit the first two points. Today we'll hit the the last three. So last week, created by God, created male and female. If you want to listen to that, and I'd encourage you to listen to that, a lot of good feedback coming from that sermon. Um, Just get on where you get your podcasts, search Brandywine Grace, and you can listen to that, or get on YouTube our YouTube channel, you can listen to it there. Those were the first two points. Not going to go back and preach those again. Created by God, created male and female. Now we got three more to hit. Points three, four, and five to deal with five highlights about humanity as God made us. So number three, if you're a note taker, number three, created body and soul. Created body and soul. And soul. And with this point, we're highlighting one of the ways in which humans are different and special 
from everything else that God has created up to this point in the creation story. You follow? Humans are created with a body and a soul. Now, animals, for sure, we'll speak about animals for a minute because I know we have animal lovers in the house, and I know that for some, I felt like my illustration was going off the rails last week, and some people didn't take to my illustration of putting a cat out of its misery. <laughs> and I understand, you got to know your audience, <laughs> and I... Oh, we made some errors there. So let me reclaim it. Animals for sure have their own personality, right? If you've ever owned a dog, you know that they have their own personality, and they can make decisions. They, they can do this. Let me illustrate for a second. We had a dog for 10 years, Angus. He was like 130, 140-pound black Newfoundland. Looked like a bear. And we had an invisible fence. Let me move quickly through this. We had an invisible fence that kept him contained in our yard. And unbeknownst to us, at times, the invisible fence would break, would not be working, and he would discover this. But he was smart enough to not go out the front driveway or not to go out the front. He knew that was a no-no. He knew he was supposed to stay within this confined, electric-fenced area. And so once in a while, you'd see him down in the backyard, and he'd just be wandering like this. <laughs> he had that look on his face, like, don't notice me out here. I'm just wandering around. <laughs> and then he would slowly get to the, to the shed in the back of our yard, get behind the shed, and go through the fence there where no one could see. That's pretty smart, right? He's thinking. He has something of a personality. But animals operate out of instincts that God has given them. The point is this. Animals don't have spirits the way humans do. What do I mean by that? Well, Angus was never laying on the ground thinking about spiritual things. Angus never thinks about the meaning of life the way you do. Angus never has thoughts about uh, what will happen if I one day meet God. Those are thoughts that you have, though. Angus was never pondering what happens when we die, like you do. And that's what I'm getting at when I highlight that humanity was created body and soul. Now, there's a lot of different camps out here, and some of you probably have, some of you who think about these things and, are, are, and find these kinds of things interesting know that there's different debates. There, there's some that believe in a three-part construction of a human and some that believe in a two-part construction. And I've thought about this a lot this week. I've just been caught up in thinking about these things. And so I'll say that there are some who believe that we're created body and soul, 
to use it, and I'll explain the language because the way I'm using language is important. But there's some that would say we're created body and soul. And then there's some that would say we're created body and soul and spirit. Okay? And I gave a lot of thought to it. This week I, I walked with Amy for a while and I talked with her about these things, the things that I was reading and studying. And here's my conclusion. The debate is not really that significant. Okay? So if you're one of those humans that is constructed in two parts, you don't have to get all fired up with the people who, like me, who think we're constructed in three parts. All right? Both sides recognize that a human being consists of a physical body. Okay? And that we also consist of something immaterial, the part of us that lives beyond death. So a body, a physical body that dies and needs to be resurrected, and an immaterial part of our construction, of our makeup, that lives beyond death. Who's with me? Everybody's with me? So the only question becomes whether you break up the immaterial part into just one or two. Okay? So don't get your knickers on a twist over this. Let me tell you how I'm, let me give an explanation of what I mean when I say body, what I mean when I say soul, what I mean when I say spirit. And I'm using reference to a lot of the language that the scripture uses throughout the entirety of the canon. Body, pretty simple, that which possesses physical life. We have a body in common with all other living things. Check. Move on. Soul. So the way, I'm, the way I'm describing soul here is that part of us that we might call our personality. Okay? It's our psyche. It's related to our physical body, though, because it's related through our brains. But it also relates to this part of our body that we call the spirit. When we talk about the soul, we're talking about that part of us that makes us us. It's that part of me that makes me Kenny. It's the part of you that makes you Matt. It's the part of you that makes you Carl. It's the part of you that makes you Sylvie. It's the part of you that makes you Caroline. It's that, it's that part of us that we can describe. We, can, you, we can't show you what it is, but we can say that that's part of who God has made them to be. It includes the things you like. It includes the things you dislike. It includes your gifts and your talents. It also includes your weaknesses. It includes the way you think about things. It includes your intellect. It includes your emotions. This is what I'm referring to. This is the part of us that enables us to have friendship with one another and to love one another. So that's how I'm using the term. So what am I talking about when I talk about spirit? When I talk about spirit, what I'm saying is we don't only have capacity for relationship with one another. We actually have been created with capacity to have relationship and communion with our Creator. 
with God. And so this is the part that I'm referring to as spirit. We can experience communion and fellowship and relationship with God, and for that, you need a spirit. Humans have a spirit. God is never said to be body or soul. Now, Jesus took on a body. We know that. He took on humanity. But God in the Bible is always defined as spirit. I was reading, I told you that this outline has been formed by a theologian named John Gerstner. He has a great insight here. After the fall, we got a quirk in our system, to say it kindly. Right? We've got a system failure. And it's a system failure that I observe in myself and I observe in all of you. And it's this, that humans in our present state, unlike in our original state, we have the, this tendency to recognize other people as rational, moral, responsible, spiritual beings. And this tendency sometimes to view ourselves as only physical beings. Illustration. This one's going to hit close to home. It's like you're a parent of a younger child. And that child says to you, Mom, Dad, how come when I do the wrong thing, it's because I'm a bad boy? But whenever you do something wrong, it's because your nerves are shot. Don't we do this to people? You're laughing because that hits. You know, we do this. I, I do this all the time. When I see somebody do something wrong, I am quick to observe and, and, and point out, if, if, if needed, um, where I think you are off the mark and irresponsible, disobedient, and, and are going to be held responsible for your actions but I'm also quick to say things like, yeah, I know, that was an angry word, but I've had a long, hard day. You see how we act? Don't you act this way? This, is, this illustrates that we actually realize that other people are spiritual, even though sometimes we excuse our misbehavior as only being the product of our physical nature. Deep down, we know we're responsible to God, don't we, church? That's your spirit. So when we talk about our spirit, we're talking about that part of us that can have communion with God, that can experience him, that can read his word, that can pray. This is, this is our spirit. And when we talk about the fall, which we're going to get to in Genesis 3, the fall being Adam and Eve's rebellion against their creator. When we talk about the fall, something died instantly. A part of humanity died. It was our spirit. This is what, let me illustrate. 
when Adam and Eve, who were in perfect communion and relationship with God, rebelled against him, what did they do? When God came into the garden looking for them, like he always does and always did, they ran away from him and they hid. Why? Because their spirits died. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. When Paul wrote that letter to the, to the church in Ephesus, they were people who were actually reading it. They weren't dead. They were alive. What did he mean by dead? He was saying they are spiritually dead. They were, it was impossible for them to save themselves unless God, in his mercy, made them alive. We're talking about the Spirit. You're with me. But man's soul, as I've defined it, intellect, feelings, personality, identity, didn't die instantly, but began to die. Humans began to lose a sense of who they are, began to have feelings that were negative, bad feelings that they began to harbor, even towards God, and even giving vent to those bad feelings. And we began to suffer a decay of our emotions and our intellect. Soul decay. This is what Paul describes in Romans 1. Having rejected God, humans inevitably became, you know this verse, many of you, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became what, church? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and reptiles and animals. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is uh, what happened in the fall. Our souls began to decay and eventually the body died. Eventually the body dies. Genesis 3.19 Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Donald Barnhouse gives a great illustration of this. He, he pictured this, and I thought this was really helpful. This guy must have been a great illustrator of God's word. He pictured, so you picture with me, a three-story house. Okay? And it's a three-story house that is bombed during wartime. The first, what was the third story, I guess what she should say. The, the third story, bomb direct hit. Totally obliterated, completely destroyed. But it falls down onto the second floor, and it just ruins the second floor. And the weight of those two floors on the third floor, creates some massive cracks in the walls, and it is eventually doomed to collapse. This illustrates for us what happened in the fall. In the fall, when the spirit, when we fell, the spirit was entirely destroyed. 
the soul and personality was ruined. And the body doomed to a final collapse. That's the curse of the fall. Now, let's talk for a minute how you can reverse the curse. I won't go into all of this, but for your base, for you baseball fans, reverse the, the curse. Does this mean anything to you? The Red Sox. Let me just tell you briefly what happened to the Red Sox. The Red Sox were impassioned to reverse the curse. The curse came about when they, they gave away, sold away the rights to one of the most famous baseball players of all time, Babe Ruth. And they sold him to the Yankees. The Yankees went on to win. I, I'm not a baseball fan, but it's like over 25 World Series. 27. 27. There you have it. The Boston Red Sox went on an 86-year drought without a World Series. It's called the Curse of the Bambino. That was the nickname for Babe Ruth. And they have, they have done things. Now, they eventually broke the curse. I think it was, somebody tell me, 2004, something like that? Okay. They broke the curse. But they, for those 86 years, they did all kinds of crazy things to try to put a hex on and, and try to break this curse. Here's my question for you. How do you break the curse of our fall, which has instantly killed your spirit, is created decay in your soul, and eventually your body is doomed to die. How can you do that? How can you reverse the curse? I am so glad that you asked, because this is the effect of what we preach and highlight every week. I talk about Jesus. This is why we take our sermons to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who reverses the curse that all of us are under because of sin. Well, how does he do it? Well, when God saves a person, you understand this, I hope, he saves your whole person. He doesn't just save a part of you. But even that takes place in stages. So the first part of you that God saves when he, when he rescues you, when you call out, on, when he opens your eyes and you see your need for him, the part that is dead is what he makes alive. And that part is what? Your spirit. You guys are good students. Your spirit is what God makes alive. He begins with the spirit then he continues with the soul, and he finishes with the body. Salvation of the Spirit comes first. God awakens the spirit of someone who is dead in sin. That's the new birth. We call it regeneration. But the soul, the personality, the intellect, who you are, God begins a process of change, and he starts to make you look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, and that is a process, and the fancy word for it is called sanctification. But what about these things? His complete salvation will result, 
And we're waiting for this. In a new body, rescued from destruction, we call that resurrection. Do you see this? Does this help you to understand what it means when I say we're created body and soul? I hope that it does. You see, this is true. If you're a Christian, God has saved you. God is saving you. And God will save you. Amen? God has saved you. It's secure. The check cleared. The transaction's complete. But isn't he now seeking by his spirit to make you new and to conform you into the image of his son? And won't he one day, church, don't we believe this, that one day these bodies that are aging and beginning to fail will be resurrected to new life with him as J. Russ prayed this morning. God makes a whole new creation. He just doesn't patch things up. Aren't you glad of that? It's like you're a broken down house, like Barnhouse described. And God just doesn't come in and say, I just, just see what we can get by with here. Just patch up a couple boards, throw a couple fresh coats of paint on it, and we'll move on with it. No, you are completely reconstructed by the grace of God. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. Praise him. He's given you a new spirit, and his own spirit lives within you now. Go home and marvel on that. He's given you a new soul. You're a new man. You're a new woman, and you're being conformed into his image, and one day you'll get your new body. And I, I personally have been feeling like I can't wait for that day. And, and I'll give you a fresh illustration why. This week I had the opportunity to work remotely. We were down at the, the beach, down at Brigantine, and we got in before work. We got up really early, me and my two boys, and we went surfing. Like We got up at like 4.30 in the morning, 5 in the morning. And here's the reality for me. They are really good. And it's frustrating. This body just can't do what they can do. And it makes for a lot of laughs because they, you know, they take all kinds of videos and they're showing everybody the videos of me falling and just, you know, at one point, you know, they said, Dad, you, your, your board came out of the wave like it was a diving board, but you were in the air in a full somersault, like a, a full flip, and they die, they die laughing. And all I want to say is, I got a new body on order, and when I get to heaven, I'm going to shred, and I'll be right there with you guys, <laughs> shredding with you, and ain't nobody going to be making fun of me anymore, because I'm going to have a body that's perfect, and you will too. All right, so we've talked about, we're talking about five highlights about humanity as God made us. That was number three. We're made, we were created body and soul. Let me hit the fourth one. That one will take a little, a little time, and then the fifth one will function as a conclusion, okay? So number four, we were created to rule. Created to rule. Now, where do I get that? I take this highlight from verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And then he continues in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So you see where I'm taking this language of rule. We were created for dominion. Now, notice that this idea of ruling and subduing and and being fruitful and having dominion comes right after God has told us, verse 28, God bless them, or verse 26, then let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So right after he tells us that we've been made in the image of God, he tells us, he tells humanity that we have been created to rule. So we must realize, church, that to be made in God's image means to rule like God rules. Adam and Eve and their kids created to be kings and queens of creation. This is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. It puts the stewardship of creation in our hands. Now, this, I could move in a lot of ways to apply this. I'm going to move in a very particular way that I think will prove helpful for us to apply. But we could do a whole section on the environment, talk about hot button issues today. Um, That's not what I'm going to do today. And perhaps some commentary will come out as we move through uh, Genesis 1 through 3, but that's not where I'm going today. God, though, put the stewardship of creation in our hands. Adam and Eve worked in the Garden of Eden, and in order to work in a garden, undoubtedly, they probably created tools, right, to, to handle the work of the garden. We're told that Adam was given responsibility for categorizing, sorting, and naming all of the animals. Well, that's a day's work, right? And he did pretty good, I think. I mean, what else would you call a hippopotamus? And they designed their clothing out of fig leaves. They made clothing for themselves. I mean, there's your first Gore-Tex shorts. Right there, Adam and Eve creating. But I think this idea, and I felt this way, when I started thinking about ruling and subduing, and being fruitful, and multiplying, and having dominion. I had, to, I had to admit that those concepts, and I think it's true for all of us, those are kind of unfamiliar concepts to us. What does that, what's that mean for us to have dominion, to rule? Maybe you can relate to this in some way. This is an illustration from my own life, but I think you'll be able to relate to it in some way. You're hiking a mountain. And it's heavily forested. And when you come down the mountain, you come, you, you step out into a little clearing where there's a little valley, and there's a stream running through that valley. And what you see is where the stream has kind of pulled up and the water has become deeper. And when you stop for a moment, you see fish rising and smacking the surface. And it's not enough for me just to take it in. There's a desire in me to catch the fish. <laughs> or maybe you look at it this way. Maybe have you ever stood, uh, stood and looked at a mountain in the distance 
And you look at the beauty in the mountain, and you gaze at the beauty of the mountain, but you wonder, I wonder what it would be like to snowboard down that with snow. Or maybe you prefer skis. Or maybe you just climb into one of those cheap plastic sleds. And you just want to feel what it would be like to to ride down that hill. Or maybe you use the language of surfing. You're at the beach and you see waves and you have this thought. It's not enough to just stand there. Sometimes it's enough to stand there, but there's this thought in you like, what can I do with that? How can I harness that? How can I take advantage of that? How can I enjoy that? That's what we're talking about when we talk about created to rule. I want to snowboard it. I want to surf it. I want to fish it. I want to have dominion over these things. Culture is what we make of the world. It's taking the physical world and, made, and molding it into something else. That's what culture is. Someone once had the bright idea to take some rocks, to light a fire, get them hot enough that you could actually make iron. And then they took that metal, cut it into shapes, put an engine in it, and, and, and put four wheels on it, and then they started driving cars. And that was fun. I'm sure it was amazing, right? I can feel amazed when I get to drive certain types of cars. In the beginning, God made the raw materials for human culture. So let me show you a picture that will illustrate something for you. Anybody know what that is? An ugly piece of PVC pipe? That right there, friends, is a ram pump. And you don't know what a ram pump is, but my father-in-law knows what a ram pump is. He made that thing. And, and, and this is an illustration of this. He made that thing because in walking his property and growing a garden, he realized, he asked the question, I wonder if I could get, there's a little stream running through there, how can I get some of that water onto my garden without a machine? Without, well, without an engine, without gasoline, and without electricity. And so he remembered something he had read like 30 years ago in a homesteading magazine that you can actually make something that takes advantage of water pressure and gravity, and you can actually pump water up 200 feet, his, this water goes, and up 15 feet into a barrel that waters his garden. I love that he thought of that. I, lo I love even this. I love, who was the first person that said, hmm, I wonder how I could get that water over there, up there, but I don't have an engine to do it. Isn't that amazing? That's an, that's an illustration of ruling and dominion. What does that mean for you and me today? The spirit we know was hovering over the waters, creating and now lives within us, if you're a Christian, and wants to empower you to make something of the world. This is what God's desire is. You have real purpose in the world. God wants to use you. The gifts and talents that he's given you and even the weaknesses that he's given you, empowered by his spirit to make the world a better place. And if you don't know where to begin, that seems it's such a big world, and I don't know what to do, start with your vocation. Start with what you're going to get up and do 
well, maybe not tomorrow because some of you are off, but start with what you do with your days. Whatever work you do, the Spirit wants to work with you to bless the world through it. How do we do that? There's probably a lot of ways. Let's take an easy one. Our work should be excellent. The things that we lay our hands to should be excellent. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily. I love that word. We need to understand what that means. Work heartily at it as for the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily at it as for the Lord. So whatever you're called to do, which is different than what I'm called to do, whatever we're all called to do, Scripture says we should work heartily at it. What's heartily? Well, the Greek translation word would be something like this. Put your soul into it. Put your whole self into it. Why? Because what you're doing is for the Lord. What you're doing is actually an opportunity to give glory to God. It's actually an act of worship. From the soul, everything you do, whether you're a soccer player, a college soccer player, or uh, uh, getting ready to go to college and do schoolwork for the first time, whatever your job is, you have this opportunity. Moms with young, a lot of moms here with young children, whatever you do in your parenting, work heartily, put your soul into it so that we can bring glory to God. I was reading, some of this is influenced by some, a book I'm reading by Jonathan Dodson, which is really good. It's all about the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit in our lives. But he tells a story of washing windows, a job he hated. He planted a church in Austin, Texas, and, and, he, and he took a job washing windows just to kind of side hustle a little bit, make a little money on the side. And he hated the job. He got up for work and he hated it every day. And what made it worse is he lived in Austin. So when he would get up to the window and slap some of the window cleaner on it, it, would, it was so hot, it would evaporate before he could even get the squeegee on it. So it was just this frustrating job. And he was just thinking about how it seems so meaningless. But he made this observation one day as he was kind of praying through these things is that all the other window washers never washed the ledge of the window. They just washed the window and then he moved on. They didn't wash the ledge of the window and the ledge of the window gets nasty and gunked up with all the residue from the cleaner and the dirt and the dust. And so he decided one day that he was going to be a window washer that wiped the ledge. Because he felt like that made his work more meaningful because he was going to wipe the ledges for God. He tells stories of going to another job and forgetting to wipe some of the ledges at the last job, getting in his car and driving back over to wipe the ledges at the previous place because he had come to this conclusion that his work was important because he was doing it for the Lord. He was putting his soul into it. And that meant he was going to wipe every ledge. He came to understand that in the kingdom of God, window ledges mean something. Washing those windows was a way for him to worship God. How about you? You struggling to find meaning in your work? You feel like your job's mundane, monotonous, 
boring, doesn't seem to matter. God created you to rule. Your work, your tasks, they can be done as an act of worship if you do it well. Be the best lead pastor you can be. Write the best sermon you can write. Mow the best lawn you can mow. Make the most beautiful piece of furniture you can make. Change that hundredth diaper, thousandth diaper with joy. Get good at it. Get fast at it. Run the numbers until you spot the error. Paint that door as beautiful as you can. Write that article as clearly as you can. Lead that organization to do some good in the world. Finish your schoolwork to the best of your ability. What's your windowsill? What's your ram pump? Whatever you do, the Spirit wants to work through you to bless the world. Let's do that for the glory of our King. Amen? Concluding point. Let me make this concluding point. The concluding point is this. Our fifth highlight about humanity as God has created us is that God created us holy. We've considered five highlights about humanity. This one's different, though, because the other four highlights, though distorted by sin, remain. Humans are still created by God. Humans are still created male and female. Humans are still made, created body and soul. Humans are still created to rule. But here we see that man was created holy as God is holy, but not a shred of that remains. Moses tells us about man in Genesis 6. He says, Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, I've already talked about how we're spiritually dead. An inmate on death row is called a dead man walking. Spiritually, that's what we are, apart from Christ. Dead men walking, dead women walking. And friends, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need a Savior. God made men holy. God made women holy. But he and she sought out our own devices through the work of of the first man, the first Adam, and the first woman. We sought to shake free of his rule. We turned to our own way and brought ruin to the human race. No one is born holy. No one is born righteous. No one is born a Christian. We need a Savior because we could never save ourselves. And we have no hope of regaining our original holiness. Anybody that would give you hope of that is not referring to the truth of God's Scripture. We can't regain our original holiness on our own. Otherwise, the death of Jesus on the cross in our place makes no sense. Jesus died because we need him. Right here at the beginning, God instructs us that we could never get to God on our own, so God sent Jesus to come get you. The picture's like this. It's like we jumped into a pit, and now we're trapped. 
We're trapped in the pit. And we remain in that pit until God, by his grace, through the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit, lifts you out of that pit. Jesus stands at the top of that pit that we threw ourselves into and offers his help. He offers his rescue. He offers his salvation. A Christian is someone who has accepted the offer that Christ has made, grabbed hold of his hand by the work of the Spirit, and been lifted up out of that pit. Someone who's not a Christian is simply someone that's in that same pit who is asking the question, is there anybody else up there? Is there any other way in which I could do this? Because I'm not interested in being a follower of Jesus. I'm not interested in, in what your, your free offer of grace and salvation. I'm going to find a way of salvation on my own. And some of us do that. We look to money to save us. We look to relationships to save us. But Jesus stands at the top of that pit, and he offers his salvation. Friends, Jesus would rescue you. Would you accept his rescue? Jesus would save you. Would you receive his offer of salvation? Jesus would have you. The question is, would you have Jesus? Those are five highlights about humanity as God has made us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that you would take it and apply it to our lives and help us to live lives now that are pleasing to you. And for anyone that is contemplating grabbing hold of the hand of Jesus that reaches down into that pit, I pray that you would move them to act quickly, to respond to his grace and experience the freedom of his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.